Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. Before this episode begins, I have an announcement for listeners in the United States. Both of the guests on this episode along with Ilya Botreitskis and Dennis Bondar, are going to be speaking at events in Chicago, New York, and San Francisco and the Bay Area in September 2023, uh, with events sponsored by the Ukraine Solidarity Network. So if you're interested, please see the link about these events in the show notes. It's August the 8th, 2023, nearly a year and a half since the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I agree with Gilbert Ashkar, who's, a, for people who don't know, a socialist of Lebanese origin based in Britain, uh, when he says that the war remains an anti-imperialist war of self-defense on Ukraine's side, even if it is indeed exploited by NATO powers for their own strategic interest, which of course means we should try to oppose anything that might tilt the balance towards turning the war into an essentially inter-imperialist one, in his words. Sadly, though, uh, most people on the left don't understand the war this way, and I think this makes it even more important uh, to develop an adequate internationalist socialist understanding of the war, which means we need dialogue between like-minded people from Ukraine and Russia and those of us outside those states. So I'm very glad to be joined on this episode of Victor's Children by two guests. So could you introduce yourselves? Maybe Hannah first? Okay, um, thank you for inviting me. My name is uh, Hanna Perehoda. I'm a researcher at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. Um, I'm working on political imagination in Russia and Ukraine uh, with a particular focus on the events of 1917. I'm also a member of a Swiss-based committee of solidarity with uh, Ukraine and with the Russian anti-war activists and also a member of uh, Ukrainian democratic left organization uh, called Sozialne Ruch. I think is social movement in English, right? Yeah. Ilya? Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Ilya Matveyev. I'm a political scientist, uh, currently a visiting scholar at uh, UC Berkeley in the United States. Uh, I study Russian political economy and currently my focus is uh, Russian imperialism and its political economic origins. Great. So to start with, uh, could you give your opinion of why you think Putin launched the invasion and, and how we should explain what has happened? So, all right, I can start. Uh, this is actually not an easy question because uh, there is no definite answer provided by anyone. And furthermore, uh, it is still, still difficult to understand. So, why this decision was made. It's not, uh, in my opinion, it was not a rational decision. And uh, if one looks at uh, kind of objective economic processes, political processes, there is no real reason 
to start this war. So in my opinion, uh, this decision was uh, subjective. It was based on uh, uh, a kind of ideology, a nationalist reactionary ideology that Putin personally uh, possesses. And uh, uh, on uh, his complete rejection of uh, this idea that Ukraine can be a sovereign, independent nation. And so this led uh, Putin to start this war. Uh, and, and and certainly if, if he didn't start it, then this war would be avoided. So this is important to understand. It was not predetermined in any way. It was uh, Putin's decision. Yeah, I agree with Ilya that this question is a difficult one and it deserves a separate lecture actually. So if we try to simplify, I would say there are two main elements, general elements. Um, firstly, an ideological and then a real war is, of course, a classic tool for persuading the impoverished population that they must not rebel against the elites that exploit them in a completely uncontrolled manner. So um, we know that Putin turned Russia into one of the most unequal states in the world. 1% of Russians owns uh, 75% of the total wealth of the country. And um, of course, the more the inequality grows, the more vulnerable the regime feels and the more aggressive it becomes uh, externally. Um, so, but what I would like to discuss more in details and here I join Ilya is uh, the reason why this war was actually launched against Ukraine in particular and not against another country, another post-Soviet country, because Ukraine is a country with which ordinary Russians have the most cultural proximity. Many people have family ties, friends there. And um, if Ukraine succeeds actually in building a democratic and prosperous state, it risks uh, to awaken some dangerous ideas among Russian population who may ask itself if Ukrainians, people very similar to us, do not need a repressive authoritarian state to live uh, normally, uh, why do we need it? Um, so this is the first uh, reason, I think, why Ukraine is, was, was a target. But the second one is that um, Ukraine occupies a very, very important place in the uh, mindset of the Russian ruling classes, in their identity, as it was formed in the 19th century um, and as it survived up to this day. And I think uh, Putin sincerely shares this kind of nationalist ideas. And just to give uh, a few um, uh, a few elements to understand what is this representation of Ukraine, is that for Russian political elites, losing Ukraine in this worldview means first to lose um uh, a great power status that means no longer be, being equal to this Western significative other to this Western model. Um, and for example, when it uh, these nationalist ideas were born in the 19th century, Ukraine was seen as an essential element for a strong Russian nation, consolidated national core uh, that was perceived as uh, a key to success in this inter-imperialist competition with France, with Germany, with other imperialist states. So Ukraine was kind of a, a central element to the um, power of, of the Russian nation, to the strength of the Russian nation. And the second element that um, when the Russian nationalism was born in the 19th century, the elites were trying to 
preserve their autocratic power in um, in this world that was submerged by the revolution. And Ukraine was seen as kind of the last um, outpost against this virus of democracy, virus of nationalism, etc. So today, Ukraine is also perceived by Putin, by the political elites, uh, in the same way. Uh, if Ukraine ex- escapes from under control, as they imagine, uh, they think that it will inevitably uh, Ukraine will inevitably infiltrate Russia with these subversive ideas. This is why to turn Ukrainians into Russians is perceived by the Russian political class as something uh, is as a necessary condition for this for their ontological security for the ontological security of of the Russian state. Uh, and just to finish on this, uh, just to say that. Um, Putin and his um, like-minded people uh, started this war following this logic of uh, ontological security and not the logic of this physical security. So uh, it has nothing to do with the real threat of other countries, of NATO, whatsoever, but it has everything to do with, uh, um, with the ideological structures that determine the worldview of, of Russian ruling classes. Um, so I actually agree with this point. Uh, the second point that Ukraine really occupies a very special place in this political imagination of the Kremlin. It's just true. And uh, uh, this leads uh, Putin and his associates to make uh, these uh, terrible, irrational uh, decisions. But uh, What's important here is also that there is a, a context to this war. So aggression against Ukraine actually started in uh, 2014. And uh, so, like my opinion, after uh, studying this for a long time, is that uh, in 2022, uh, Putin wanted to kind of uh, untie this Gordian knot in just one swift move, because he tried this covert kind of uh, slow, gradual process of aggression against Ukraine. And his idea was that uh, if Russia annexes Crimea, if Russia occupies uh, east of Ukraine, then Ukraine will lose its ability to be an independent uh, country. And so ultimately, it will be kind of subservient to Russia and Russia will have a huge influence in Ukraine. So that was the point. The point was uh it was never just about Crimea or just about Donbass. It was about um, controlling Ukraine and trying to have a kind of veto power over Ukrainian affairs. And then what Putin uh, saw is that this strategy failed because instead of uh, being controlled by Russia, Ukraine was more and more moving into uh, anti-Russian kind of pro-Western direction. And this is perfectly understandable because uh, uh, if uh, if you face an aggressor, that would be a strange thing, you know, to move closer to this aggressor. So Russia annexes Crimea, and then Ukrainians suddenly should be grateful to Russia for something, right? So, so it's understandable that Ukraine was moving away from Russia. And so Putin's primary objective was never achieved. And uh, at some point he decided that, that, you know, we need to end the situation. So it's going badly for Russia. My previous kind of strategy is not working. I was trying to influence Ukraine through these occupied territories. I was trying to influence Ukraine through pro-Russian politicians like Medvedchuk. But uh, Ukraine is just uh, 
So, so, so I'm failing with this strategy. Therefore, I just need to solve this problem once and for all, solve the Ukrainian problem. And so, uh, uh, but, but the way for him to solve this problem was to try and conquer the whole country. Of course, there was another solution just to stop this aggression, basically, and uh, retreat and uh, uh, stop the imperialist practice. But for Putin, of course, it was not uh, a solution. So uh, there's an interesting book by uh, an American uh, political scientist, Jack Snyder. It's called Myths of Empire. So the basic point is that uh, once uh, there is an imperialist policy, a policy of kind of violent expansion, so uh, politicians and political class, they are prone to continuing this policy instead of abandoning this policy, even though you see that uh, it's counterproductive. So, for instance, uh, Russia annexed Crimea, Russia attacked Donbass, and then uh, NATO troops in Europe actually increased after this fact, because of this fact, right? So uh, the West became more consolidated in its confrontation with Russia. So the policy is clearly not working. And so maybe this is the time to rethink this policy. But instead of rethinking it, Putin actually doubled down on the same failed policy and uh, he launched the full-scale invasion that was destined to fail. It was obvious to anyone that this, this was going to fail. So I remember perfectly, I think like anyone in Russia or in Ukraine, you know, the 24th of February when this happened. And so it was immediately clear to me that this uh, invasion will fail eventually. So details were not clear, you know, but the, the fact that this is going to fail was clear to me, but not to Putin, because this is how these myths of empire operate. So they somehow cloud your judgment. And uh, you think that if you just keep on, keep on attacking, keep on expanding, then your problems will be solved. But the opposite is actually the case. And ultimately, the Kremlin will learn this lesson. It's interesting, we could consider this as you know, just a recent example of many ruling class self-delusions. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the U.S. ruling class thinking about being able to win in Vietnam um, back in the in the 60s. But um, maybe, Ilya, you could put some of this in another, another context. Um, if we think about global capitalism as being organized in a, in a system which is hierarchical, where the U.S. is still at the top, although it's relatively less uh, powerful than it once was, China is rising. You can think about you know, to use the phrase of Lenin's an imperialist chain, where does Russia fit within that system today? Right. So this is one of the difficult problems here, because as Marxists, uh, as Marxists, we tend to uh, see the, the logic of events through uh, some kind of political economic lens. But then uh, there was no real reason, economic reason, I mean, there was no uh, kind of contradiction in the process of capital accumulation that should have led Russia to attack Ukraine, neither in 2014, neither in 2022. So yes, there was an economic conflict. So in 2013, 2014, Putin wanted Ukraine to join his Eurasian Economic Union, so his regional structure, and uh, Ukrainians didn't want that, so they wanted to join, ultimately join the European Union. And uh, there was a clash of two economic projects and uh, free trade agreements, essentially. But, uh, and, and yes, there was a real conflict of economic interests behind that, because uh, uh, if Ukraine joins Russia's regional project, then it would be very beneficial for Russian capitalists. It's true. But the thing is, uh, to answer 
Ukraine's unwillingness to join Russia's uh, alliance with uh, this military aggression, this is even more counterproductive because even in 2014, so when Russia began all these things, so uh, some of Russian investments in Eastern Ukraine, they were lost because of the war itself. You know that actually the Kremlin invested at least $8 billion only in East Ukraine, only through its uh, state bank. It's called Nyeshekanom Bank. So Putin had this idea of trying to uh, acquire a lot of industrial uh, assets in Eastern Ukraine to try and influence Ukrainian economy and Ukrainian politics in this way. And so there were a lot of Russian investments in East Ukraine. And these investments, they were damaged by the war itself. So all these factories, they just stopped working. And basically it was a loss for the Vnesh Econom Bank, it was a loss of uh, some eight, ten billion dollars, just that. And other Russian state companies, they also had investments all over Ukraine, and and this was also a loss for these companies. So some of these investments they were sold below their price. Some of them were expropriated by Ukrainian authorities. So this previous economic strategy, you know, economic imperialism, it stopped working because of this military uh, aggression. So. And uh, uh, kind of in a wider view uh, for Russian capital, it was quite, quite beneficial to be integrated into the global economy. Yes, the global economy was dominated and still is dominated by the West, by the United States, but still it was uh, very advantageous for Russian companies to be integrated into these global financial flows. And uh, they were making profits they were investing all over the world. So there was economic expansion, but uh, the kind of the military expansion that Putin started contradicted this previous economic way of uh, integrating into the global economy, into the global system. So uh, I, I don't think that this was caused by some structural economic process. It was caused by uh, the Kremlin's decision. And uh, it is possible, you know, for imperialism to have this autonomous political logic. It is not necessarily caused by uh, some kind of structural economic factors. Although, of course, these factors are present. So, for instance, between United States and China, there is a lot of structural kind of no tension. So th this conflict has objective structural roots and economic roots. But with uh, Russia and the United States, there was no real kind of, th these tensions were not strong enough to cause this kind of conflict. So I think it was caused by the Kremlin's decision. And this is really the political logic and the ideological logic that caused this conflict and not some uh, economic contradiction. Yeah, I might add just... Um a few words about it uh, very shortly. I think um, that uh, one of the ways to uh, analyze um, what is happening is also we need to distance ourselves from this uh, neo-realist kind of explanations, uh, which are very, very widespread on the left, on the right, like in the media in general, um, and actually uh, to adopt more of a a constructivist approach, remembering that in uh, uh, international politics, actors act towards the objects, including other actors, on the basis of the meanings that these objects have for them. So we need to understand these meanings. And this is something, the, the meanings, the, the values, the norms of the actors we want to analyze. And this is something that actually escapes 
uh, observers who think only in terms of physical security, economic gain, uh, who are thinking that actually the states are uh, some kind of actors that share some kind of universal rationality. And this universal rational, uh, this understanding of a universal rationality is actually very Western centered. So I think we need to move um, to distance ourselves from this very Western central neorealist approach. Uh, and this is something you must keep in mind if you want to understand the logic behind the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. So, for instance, I would add uh, this question about NATO. So whenever Western leftists uh, talk about uh, this war, they always talk about NATO. So at this moment, not all of them, but still, you know, a lot of uh, Western leftists, they still point to NATO expansion as a cause of the war. But let's look at it from this uh, kind of new realist point of view. So on the one hand, uh, some scholars, they argue that, yes, Russia was just responding to NATO expansion, so it was threatening Russia, therefore Russia had to act and to uh, prevent further NATO expansion. On the other hand, uh, you know, while NATO was uh, including new countries, the, the number of NATO troops in Europe was actually decreasing. So before 2014, it was decreasing, and it was a, a much, much smaller contingent than it was during the Soviet times. And in fact, there were no plans to increase the number of NATO troops in Europe. And especially there were no plans to increase the number of NATO troops on Russian borders because NATO command understood that this would be provocative. So, uh, and, and in terms of objective kind of security concerns, it didn't make sense to respond to NATO expansion with military aggression, because this is exactly the thing that would lead to the increase in the number of troops. So military aggression will, will lead to increasing uh, military presence, American military presence in Europe, to uh, increasing military budgets of uh, European countries, and to the general consolidation of NATO. So if you respond to NATO expansion with military aggression, this is exactly the most counterproductive move possible. If you try to uh, counter it with uh, diplomacy, with negotiation, with uh, pointing to NATO's kind of uh, dubious you know, reason for existence, so the Soviet Union is not there, but NATO still exists. So this could be productive for Russia. But once you respond to NATO with military aggression, you only lead to the increase in this threat. And this is what was happening since 2014. So in terms of uh, the realist view, you know, one realist scholar would say that the this theory can explain what Russia is doing. Another scholar would say that this theory actually contradicts what Russia is doing. Because in order to counter the threat, you need to have an objectively rising threat. But NATO was not a rising threat for Russia, right? So um, in that sense, yes, these tensions between NATO and Russia, they were inevitable, in my opinion. So uh, since Russia was not included in the NATO alliance, it's clear that uh, some kind of tension was inevitable. But to turn this tension into a European military conflict, this was not some kind of predetermined outcome. And I agree completely with uh, Hannah when she says that we need to analyze what meanings uh, uh, the Kremlin had in its uh, targets. So, so how, how did the Kremlin think about its objectives? And uh, there was this set of irrational ideas about Ukraine, about the West, 
and also a very important idea, the West was instigating all the so-called color revolutions. So the Kremlin is just incapable of believing that people uh, rise up by themselves. You know, it's just uh, the part of this uh, KGB mentality that any everything is inspired by some foreign power. And so for Putin, this was, uh, uh, it all came together. So, so for him, the idea was that all the revolutions and uprisings in the post-Soviet countries, somehow they are inspired by America. And America wants to replace, ultimately, to replace Putin personally. And so they want to start a color revolution in Russia. And they're also expanding NATO, uh, even though they promised not to. So it's all part of this huge conspiracy. And only with uh, asymmetrical force, you can uh, fight this conspiracy. But this was really just uh, irrational ideological thinking in the end. Well, before we get to talk about some of the uh, arguments and just, uh, points of view that we encounter on the Western left, I did want to ask a question to say, you know, now that Putin, once once Putin had done what he had done, um, the U.S. obviously then figured out if this was an opportunity for the U.S. administration. Um, so could you say something briefly about what you think the U.S. administration's objectives are in relation to Russia around the, the war, and also what the U.S. is uh, aiming to achieve vis-a-vis Ukraine? Mm, so I actually don't think that uh, in America, this the establishment treats uh, the war as an opportunity. I, I disagree with this. So it's true that uh, mm, like American policy towards Russia would be different, right? Uh, so, uh, like the problem maybe was that, uh, for instance, in 2008, so the, in, at the NATO summit, uh, there was this promise that Ukraine and, and Georgia would join NATO eventually, but no concrete roadmap for them to join NATO. So that was uh, a bad decision because it created uncertainty. So on the one hand, the Kremlin doesn't like this idea, right? And so this kind of enrages the Kremlin. On the other hand, Ukraine and Georgia are still not protected by NATO because there is no even a concrete path for them to join. So it leaves uh, Ukraine in a bad position. So this was probably a bad move. And uh, the point was back in 2000s, back like 15 years ago, to try and create some kind of common you know, security architecture, something like that. So maybe that was possible 15 years ago. 15 years ago. But uh, uh, since then, America was not trying to provoke Russia with Ukraine. This is a fundamentally wrong idea. So for instance, um, there was this report published by Rand Corporation. So it's called Extending Russia. It was published in 2019, as I remember. And uh, Russian propaganda uses it as proof that uh, America wanted to provoke uh, Russia by kind of inspiring these events in Ukraine. So this report is really, it's not nice. So the, the basic point is that America and Russia are in this huge confrontation. Therefore, America needs to extend Russia by trying to... Um, to provoke it really to spend more resources on uh, uh, on defense, right? But then, if you if you read this report, they consider this idea. What if we try to, for instance, provide more military aid to Ukraine in order to provoke Ukraine, uh, provoke Russia into you know trying to do something in Ukraine? So, what if we try to do that? And then they completely reject this idea. They say it doesn't make sense. 
because it can lead to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, it can lead to uh, increasing tensions, and we should not do it. So American establishment kind of rejected this idea. And in fact, uh, the amount of uh, military aid provided to Ukraine before the war was very small. It was almost uh, non-existent. So this is important to remember. And the point was not to provoke Russia, you see? So there were really not much kind of malignant intentions on the part of America in Ukraine specifically, right? So it, they, they kind of left Ukraine hanging a bit, but they didn't try to provoke Russia with Ukraine. It's, it's a wrong idea. They didn't try to do that. And so uh, uh, currently, of course, uh, they see no problem in Russia continuing to destroy itself with this war. So like America is not going to help Russia. You know, even though uh, some observers, like some even conservative observers in America, they say, yeah, but we need a strong Russia. So maybe we need to force this peace agreements uh, in order to use uh, a strong Russia as an ally. Even now they say that, some of them, right? But in general, uh, I mean, they're not going to help Russia, but they did not provoke this war. So, for instance, uh, like the Kremlin says, that America was supplying Ukraine with weapons all the time. But it's just not true. Some of those weapons, even a small number of weapons, they were supplied with the specific idea that Ukraine cannot use them on the battlefields. So it's true. Like it was under Trump's administration, they supplied Ukraine with a bit of uh, uh, Stinger missiles. And uh, they told Ukraine that uh, they should be stored in the western part of the country so that uh, they are never used on the battlefield against Russia. And this is kind of just a precaution. And this is a very small shipment. And so, I mean, what kind of provocation is that if they are really, really small shipments of weapons? So, uh, so yeah, so just I fundamentally disagree that uh, America was trying to provoke Russia into attacking Ukraine. It's just not true. Do either of you have any thoughts about, about what the U.S., um, or how, let me put it this way, um, what kind of a society the U.S., state would like to mold in Ukraine, you know, uh, as a result of the uh, the war. And also, so uh, uh, I think it's a wrong idea to think that uh, America is trying to mold some society in Ukraine. So, like, in my opinion, it, it might be possible that, uh, like, some international kind of economic consultants, they are pushing for neoliberal reforms, for instance. This This is true. But it's not like America is trying to transform Ukraine into something new. So and I don't think it's even possible. You can't just transform one country into something new. Like it's it's not how it works. So the, the initiative is on the Ukrainian side, right? So uh, it's true that there is this influence in terms of some neoliberal solutions to Ukraine's economic problems, but I wouldn't go beyond that. I think that... Uh, Ukraine, Ukraine's fate is ultimately in the fates of Ukrainians and not Americans, not American establishments. And also, just to add, I don't think Zelensky and the, his government are actually need to be pushed uh, in order to implement neoliberal reforms, but because they were actually doing it before the war, and this is their like political program, even if they don't really have a program, but this is how they view the rational economic system. And these are like 
they have this neoliberal thinking and most of the time they are even more uh, radical in their uh, economic solution that what actually European Union, for example, asked them to do. So this is kind of they are going in the logic of this dismantlement of uh, welfare and social state and all this um, what uh, what is left after the the, the Soviet Union, but is, it is not the will of some external powers. Of course, um, we don't in Ukraine. There is um, like we can we can talk about it uh, afterwards, uh, but I think it is not um, some. Um, intentions uh, from uh, uh, the US in particular that motivates the post-Soviet oligarchic systems to be what they are. They have their own logic and their own agency in it. And we need to actually understand how this kind of post-Soviet economy functions um, in itself. Yeah. So I would add that interestingly in the 90s, the same argument was put forward uh, in relation to Russia. So America was pressuring Russia into doing these neoliberal reforms. So shock therapy was supposedly invented uh, in the United States and uh, by these international financial institutions. And they were kind of pressuring Russia into implementing shock therapy. But this is just not true. It was a domestic Russian project. And even the contents of these reforms they were mostly developed by Russian economists themselves. They were the neoliberals. So, so Russia just had its own neoliberal economists. And uh, this was ultimately the reason that Russia implemented these reforms. So then the IMF was not able to pressure Russia into anything. So Russia is not the country that can be pressured by the IMF. It's just not like physically possible. It was a domestic uh, project and it had a kind of a class basis. So there were strong social forces in support of these neoliberal reforms, and this is why they happened. And in Ukraine, I think it's kind of similar. that There is a domestic reason for, for, for neoliberalism, and it can be opposed domestically as well. But it's not just America like pressuring Ukraine into adopting all these reforms. Yeah, just to add that uh, for me, it's also one of the expression of this kind of Western-centric egocentric approach to understanding uh, international politics is the thing that United States are behind all wars on the planet Earth and they are pushing all the economies to become neoliberal. Of course, we cannot ignore its um, hegemonic place in, in, the, in, the, in the whole structure. Uh, but in order to understand really what is happening, we, we need to take into account the agency of, of the actors. And yeah, most of the time in the post-Soviet space, um, local actors are even more like uh, neoliberal and wild capitalists as than we can imagine um, in the U.S. Yeah, like in general, American influence in this conflict is not that strong. So, I mean, apart from supplying weapons, which are of course crucial to 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 continuing the war, like in. in, in in, in the wider context, I mean, American influence in the post-Soviet region in general, it's not that strong. I mean, this is ultimately between those post-Soviet countries and Russia. So it's not really about America in many ways. Thanks. I think that's helpful for our listeners to, uh, to hear. Um, I want to now turn to talk a little bit about the politics of the left in so-called Canada. I think it's also generally true in the, in the U.S. Um, in understanding the left in a broad sense, the, the dominant 
view on the broad left in in Canada um, would be basically tailing behind um, the politics of of Western states, um, which uh, we could call, if you like, pro NATO campism. To think about it in those in those um, terms, that's certainly true for most people who support the New Democratic Party, which is the um, party which we could now call a social liberal party. Uh, here, the party that most union and community activists support, even if they're not very enthusiastic about it, uh, because of the way that the, the electoral system works. Um, and uh, again, I'll just mention Gilbert Ashkar, um, who, as I should make clear for listeners who don't know, is also very strongly opposed to the anti-NATO campism that we'll talk about later. Um, he's written that this current of people on the left um, are deliberately ignoring the fact that Ukraine is clearly being used as a proxy by NATO powers in order to cripple their Russian imperialist rival. That's his perspective. Of course, he's very clear uh, that this is a, a war of aggression by, by Russia and that uh, we're still, the war remains predominantly an anti-imperialist war of self-defense. Uh, but I wonder if you have any thoughts to people on the left here um, who would ignore um, the agenda of the NATO powers in relation to, to Ukraine, I guess would be, that would be a way of, of putting the question. Um, any, any thoughts about that? Well, um, I think first we need to, to clarify, to be clear, what, what do we talk about, NATO or NATO member countries? Um, because uh, NATO is not acting as a bloc in this war, as far as I can understand, uh, that may- member countries have very different level of engagement and have quite different position. Take Turkey, for example, or Greece or Hungary, compare it with France or um, Germany or Italy, etc. So, um Beside, beside that, there are also countries who are not NATO members, but who support the military effort of Ukraine. So I think we need to make clear what do we talk about, about NATO as, as, as an actor, about NATO countries. If it's NATO countries, we need to take uh, each country individually. And um, does some NATO countries pursue their own selfish interests in this war? Of course they do. Like, it would be strange if it wasn't so. Um, there is no state in the world that would support other state uh, out of, you know, moral compassion. Uh, this is not how it works. But um, I don't agree with this point about uh, proxy, you know, proxy, <laughs> proxy war, because if Ukraine was a NATO proxy or some particular country's proxy used to cripple Russia, it would not need to cry out for weapons for two years already. And as for today, the nature and the scale of this assistance, uh, military assistance, is completely insufficient to sustain Ukrainian efforts to retake their land. And now we're seeing it in practice, how the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive is actually um, cannot um, be uh, uh, so uh, so much successful because of the shortage of, of the weapons. And NATO countries um, are giving Ukraine only enough weapons to hold the line. And some of them, particularly European one, uh, they are visibly hoping for kind of a negotiated peace maybe with, uh, with uh, Russia, they are hoping for the deter- return of some kind of uh, status quo um, where they would continue, you know, their business as usual, buy cheap uh, hydrocarbons from, from Russia to continue to sustain 
um, what they seem to be an unlimited economic uh, growth uh, in Europe. And if um, we want to, you know, to denounce this kind of uh, hypocrisy of NATO uh, member countries, how NATO powers are using Ukraine, I think we must talk uh, primarily about this, uh, about the way uh, some of them want to make a deal with so-called great powers like Russia about the heads of uh, subalterns, about the heads of Ukrainians like they always did, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the context of this Russian aggression in Ukraine, I think to focus yourself on this uh, proxy war um, theories or to uh, even to focus yourself on this anti-NATO calls, for example, exclusively. For me, is to say it mildly, it is kind of politically irresponsible. Uh, but what we can do instead is we can, for example, to fight for uh, the universality of norms, uh, the universality of sanctions uh, when they are when these norms are violated. We can fight for, you know, democratizing, for example, the United Nations for creating another or inside of the United Nations to create a collective democratically run infrastructure that could address uh, this uh, important international security issues, uh, the issues of, of ecology. Also, we need to really to um, collaborate on this question and this collaboration is, seems to be um, uh, more and more uh, impossible uh, to actually solve the uh, the uh, the problem of um, ecological crisis because because of the war and because how the war logic infects our societies. So we instead of you know just this um, schematic thinking, we could focus on on um, how this international. Uh, legal and security order can be can be protected, considering the fact that some other countries than Russia, U.S. among others, have uh, multi uh, undermined undermined uh, this international order multiple times, and this means that we must insist that the criminals of all wars must be punished, must be brought to justice. Uh, so we can actually make a lot of uh, connections and and have a, a, a more nuanced uh, thinking about what is going on instead of saying just we are against NATO and against Russia. Okay, but what do you propose actually? Mm -hmm. Right. So um, um, I will talk about it from a slightly different perspective. So, for instance, this idea that. Uh, America wants to cripple Russia uh, with this war. So you can look at it in a, a different way. Uh, first of all, uh, Russia has the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world. So it's slightly bigger than even American one. And it's very clear that American authorities consider this to be a very serious uh, threat. And the, this is part of the reason why American response was very uh, uh, very measured and uh, these supplies of weapons they were they are always you know they they try not to uh, escalate too much not to provoke russia too much uh, not to risk nuclear war so uh, like american authorities consider nuclear weapons to be a real threat so why would they want an alliance between uh, china 
that they also antagonize and Russia that has the world's biggest nuclear arsenal. So this tighter alliance between China and Russia becomes a real problem for America because it's Chinese economic strength plus Russian nuclear arsenal. So in terms of geopolitics, I mean, uh, from the American point of view, it doesn't make much sense to uh, to kind of uh, to antagonize Russia too much in order to throw it into the arms of China, right? So so that you have this new Cold War between two blocks, essentially, Russia and China on the one hand, and uh, the West on the other hand. So, uh, and actually, a lot of uh, kind of realists in America, they say, look, we spend too much money, we spend too much weapons on this war, but we have to spend all these resources on China instead. This is really the arguments that a lot of Americans make, a lot of these American security establishment types. So in that sense, what is ultimately important to understand that it was Russian agency that created this war. It's all on Russia. It is on the Kremlin. So America did not provoke it. And I don't think that they wanted it. So like in my opinion, this is this is wrong to think that America ever wanted this war, even like deep down or something, <laughs> they just didn't want it. Maybe like their, their approach could be different, but they did not want this war. And I think that they actively tried to prevent it. And in fact, it, if we look at um, if we look at the events uh, before the war, like two or three months before the war. So uh, Putin was trying to blackmail America into some kind of diplomatic negotiation. And this actually worked. So actually, Americans were beginning to offer some real concessions to Russia on the diplomatic front in order to uh, to prevent the war. So these concessions were nothing like what Putin wanted, but they, they were real steps, uh, you know, by America to try to reconcile positions. But all these steps were ignored by the Kremlin because at this point, Putin already decided that uh, he wants to start a war. So... Uh, yeah, I just don't think that uh, this was this is some kind of premeditated strategy by America to weaken Russia through this war. So it's not clear that Russia is uh, militarily, for instance, that it is weakened because Russian military industrial complex is now working basically nonstop, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All these factories are full with orders to uh, rebuild Russian military very quickly. So Russian military like production is expanding all the time. And uh, Russia is weaker economically, but it might be actually become stronger militarily than before. It is possible. So and then it joins China in this alliance and it becomes a real problem. So I don't think that it was in NATO's uh, interest to do that. So, yeah. So, yeah, just kind of picking up on some of this, um, unfortunately, we're in a situation here where there, you know, many people on on the left who rightly reject Western imperialism, but then sympathize with Russia with this kind of enemy of my enemy is my friend logic, or they're at least influenced both by those ideas of what we could call anti-NATO campism. And I think you've um, effectively already uh, demolished the idea that the U.S. is primarily responsible for the invasion, which is this idea that we sometimes hear that the idea that uh, the Russians were provoked into it or something like that. Uh, but an, another argument that we sadly um, run into on the left here is that the idea that, uh, you know, the Ukrainian government is a far right nationalist government. Um, and we can trace the origins of this back to the 2014 Maidan uprising, which was a right wing coup. So, again, for people who don't know anything about 21st century Ukrainian history uh, here, could you briefly 
you know, just respond to uh, some of those claims, which get a lot of circulation um, on the, the, the left uh, in the West? Um, yeah, before answering this, I would maybe just add a few more things to finish about this NATO and anti-NATO um, thing. Um, I don't know if uh, Ilya uh, agrees with me, but as far as I know, Putin was not always like anti-West and anti-NATO. Russia was even in partnership with NATO and even organized some common military trainings back in the beginning of 2000. And it is mostly in uh, 2011 that Putin started to say that Russia is under danger, under the threat of NATO, Western enemies, that nation must support him because only him can protect uh, Russia from this uh, danger. And so we can ask ourselves what actually happened in 2011. Was it a year when some, I don't know, some Western country was particularly aggressive towards Russia or something like that? Well, it seems to me it's not. it was not the case. And the only thing that really happened this year in Russia, it was that ordinary Russians took to the streets to uh, denounce the fact that Putin violated the constitution. He wanted to be elected for the third time. They also protested against corruption, police violence, inequality, etc. And we also must remember that Putin sent its army to crush in blood some popular revolutions in Belarus and Kazakhstan when there was no question about uh, Western influence, NATO whatsoever in these countries. People there were protesting against dictatorship in one case, against economic inequality in the second case. So visibly, it's not... NATO that really threatens Russian elite, um, and it's uh, mostly the desire of people uh, in post-Soviet countries to no longer live in the corrupt mafia state. Uh, so, in my opinion, just to close this this topic, that Putin's action on the international state stage have uh, much to do uh, with more to do with Russian internal. Uh, politics than with this presumed dangers emanating from from the outside. So the threat is not external; it is mostly internal, and it is not objective threat to Russian population, but a threat to to Russian regime, uh, the regime that actually clings to power. And this is very important to not assimilate the two. If you talk, yeah, Russia is threatened, you assimilate the interest of the population and the interest of the political elites. And I don't think that Russians actually agree when we when we do that. So yeah, just, just to finish on this point. And about the Ukrainian government being a far-right nationalist regime, uh, I don't know where to start. I mean, I think only a person that was that has deliberately uh, um, that has ch chosen actually to make abstraction of reality can repeat still repeat this kind of uh, things over and over again so well um, what i say uh, in 2014 maidan uprising was a popular uprising against uh, well provoked by the fact that president yanukovych um, rejected uh, the possibility to sign the economic agreement with the European Union under pressure of, of, of Russia and turned um, uh, his uh, decision to, to align economically uh, with Russia. And, and so this provoked this, this um, manifestation. But when they became really massive 
is after the police violence. So the, what sparked really the massive protest when millions of people came to the streets, it was the extreme police violence of, of the Ukrainian state, which was kind of uh, not familiar to Ukrainians because uh, before that, um, even the authoritarian, semi-authoritarian uh, president Leonid Kuchma didn't dare to do uh, such things. Um, so yeah, this as and as all the popular uh, movements and all the popular uprising against the authoritarian state, uh, all the fractions of society participate in it. Uh, all people of uh, the whole political spectrum, from the extreme left. Uh, to the extreme right, but most of the people, like 99% of them uh, in Ukraine uh, that were participating in this movement were not politicized, were not um, uh, supporting any particular uh, uh, political movement, but why we see uh, extreme right um, uh, militants, activists, uh, on the forefront of this of this um, uh, protest is that they were the force that was actually already um, uh, used to physical to use physical violence uh, already uh, has a militarized uh, uh, culture so they were the ones who were ready to um, fight against the police uh, it was not just the extreme right but the extreme right was particularly present on the Maidan, but it doesn't make the whole protest uh, being uh, an extreme uh, right and a far right protest. And also just one element uh, uh, to understand uh, is that uh, five years after the war in, 19, in uh, 2019, uh, the far-right parties that formed uh, an electoral coalition got only 2% in in uh, in parliamentary elections in Ukraine, so they didn't even get into parliament. I don't know if I need to, to remind you how many percent far-right candidates win in certain Western countries. So the far-right in Ukraine certainly exists, and they have a certain presence in society. And the far-right violence on the street was uh, an issue, uh, particularly for some of the left, uh, left-wing left activists in Ukraine. But the far-right uh, do not have, uh, and they haven't been able to establish themselves as a legitimate political subjects. However, the risk of the threatening of, of, of the far-right, uh, in fact, could be real uh, if uh, Zelensky capitulate or make uh, too many compromises uh, with the invading force. Uh, think about uh, the example of Ireland, uh, how, how the things were going uh, there. So the, the massive resistance would continue in a different form. For example, in a form of um, guerrilla led by these hardline nationalist forces, so this is one of the risks if if uh, Zelensky appears to not be strong enough to actually protect protect the country. So the Ukrainian society may may transform may be transformed into a more um, nationalist and more far right. Uh, the far right may just uh, gain uh, more of presence in the society. It may actually uh, maybe come to power, but for the moment. Um, I don't think there is. This is a real threat for now. There's another um, idea which it's unfortunate to even have to raise it because I think it's it's 
probably, well, maybe the most absurd um, thing that we hear from some people on the so-called left here. Um, and you've partially responded to it already, but I'll just throw the, you know, the claim out and you can respond to it as you wish. Um, and that's the idea that the war is both a, a proxy war by Western imperialism trying to weaken and destabilize Russia, but seeing the objective is to go actually promote regime change and to carve up Russia into several weaker, smaller countries. And on that basis, the West wants to prolong and, and escalate the war. Could you respond maybe briefly to that claim? Um, so I would say the following. Uh, it's true that uh, some sections of uh, like American uh, national security establishments now considers this idea. Uh, I'm not sure how they can actively um, realize this goal. So what what they need to do to realize it? But it's true that now some some like parts of American establishment they consider this idea that uh, maybe it would be great if Russia just uh, disintegrated. But uh, then again, uh, I don't see uh, who who is to blame for this other than Putin himself. So he just created the situation where even this kind of discussion is possible. So before the war. This, this was completely meaningless. And now this is discussed seriously because uh, we see that uh, all kinds of contradictions in Russia are uh, sharpened. And uh, for instance, uh, like we saw Prigozhin's revolt. So what if uh, Kadyrov is next and his troops? So what's going to happen next? Uh, so um, yeah, I think that in America, some people like entertain uh, this idea. But ultimately, again, it's not about them. It's about Russia's internal processes. And uh, it was Putin who created this real danger that uh, Russia could uh, not disintegrate, but there could be some kind of civil war. In my opinion, like Putin's previous uh, previous uh, record in government, that the way he governed the country by creating these uh, semi-feudal uh, kind of um, positions and uh, creating this very powerful uh, man who can who now even control their own kind of armies like Prigozhin, right? So, and the way he shaped his relationship with Chechnya and with Kadyrov and also the war itself, all this led to the possibility of some kind of huge internal conflict in Russia. But again, this is not about America. So, yes, it's true that in America, some people entertain this idea that maybe it would be beneficial for the United States if Russia disintegrated. Most other people, even like hawkish national security types, they still reject this idea. They say, no, this is just, I mean, this is crazy. Nuclear weapons will fall into the hands of some, I don't know, warlords or something. And furthermore, we, we, we still need Russia, you know, to... As a, as a bulwark, maybe even against China. So it's a minority opinion in America. But much more important fact is that Putin's actions created, you know, the very reality in which we can discuss this. So like before we couldn't discuss it, but now I mean, so after Prigozhin, everything is possible. And some kind of huge conflict in Russia, even a civil war, I think, unfortunately, it is possible. And this is uh, very scary to me, but 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 I have to just uh, admit it, uh, just based on reality, based on what we see happening in Russia. Thank you. So uh, in the time we have left, I'd like to ask some questions that I think would be helpful for listeners, because not many people here have a very accurate 
sense of what the situation is like in Ukraine today or in Russia today. Um, so I'm wondering, Hannah, if you could uh, share some thoughts about what you think listeners here most need to understand, like what, what are the most important things people need to understand about how Ukrainian society has changed since the war began? Well, it will be difficult to say what is the most important, of course. Uh, well, war um, changed everything. It's primarily, of course, the war destroyed the lives of many Ukrainians. It also destroyed the economical potential of Ukraine. It uh, The Russian army also did a lot to damage the ecosystems, uh, which has irreversible consequences, especially in the uh, eastern and southern part of Ukraine, uh, eastern part being a highly industrialized uh, region and the amount of ecocide and um, the amount of damage done to the nature and also to the human infrastructure in, in this region, which was the most populated region of Ukraine before, uh, well, it's even hard to imagine. Um, so we will deal with all these consequences. Uh, the Ukrainian society uh, must deal with it and nobody knows how exactly. Um, but yeah. Um, so also the thing that is important to understand is that Russia is actually um, using a strategy of uh, terror against the civilian population. Uh, it's bombing uh, mostly residential areas. So uh, a lot of Ukrainians, like all the Ukrainians, actually live under the constant uh, threat of missiles that can reach any part of the country um, anytime. Uh, we have also thousands, tens of thousands, maybe um, hundreds of thousands of civilians who uh, have uh, found themselves uh, under the occupation, who were victims of um, forced displacement, of uh, rape, of uh, torture on a mass scale, um, also of murder. So we have basically a population of, uh, you know, 40 million people who will live with PTSD for the rest of their lives and children included, and we will have to deal with it somehow. So, but despite also the, the horrors of this war, uh, what we have seen, what we have experienced as a society is uh, the capacity of ordinary citizens, ordinary Ukrainians for uh, self-organization. And it remains actually one of the keys uh, for the countries uh, to the country's resistance to uh, this uh, imperialist aggression. So uh, people are extremely mm, engaged into uh, resistance, organizing themselves from below, and they're doing it uh, to support the military effort on one side, but also on the other side, an important fraction of society tries to organize itself to oppose uh, the antisocial policies of this very same state they are actually supporting when it comes to the military effort. It doesn't mean that Ukrainians are completely uh, became completely passive uh, uh, towards the um, misdeeds of the of its own government. Thank you. Could you say something briefly about how you think the politics of nationalism have, have changed during the course of the war within Ukraine? Um, this is also a huge topic, of course. 
Um, first thing that we need to understand how the Ukrainian nationalism changed is uh, to we need to consider that the war in Ukraine didn't start in 2022. It started and was infecting the whole social life since uh, um, 2014. Uh, so if even if the scale was not the same this is since 2014 that people have friends and relatives dying on the front line uh, so uh, the state and society are actually at war for nine, nine years already so of course uh, there is um, this kind of the emotional affiliation with the state that defends itself against the external aggression of course it becomes more prominent uh, among the population and in uh, the struggle against the aggression, people adopt uh, more uh, and expose more uh, national symbols. They think so, they think of themselves uh, more in national terms, which was not re um, the case uh, before 2014. And uh, of course, they start to value uh, the things that um, actually can be taken for granted uh, in the countries that have gained their independence uh, centuries or decades uh, earlier, like things like political sovereignty, cultural sovereignty. This is something we are taking for granted, but for Ukrainians, this is something they are fighting for uh, at this very moment. And in that sense, we can say that, yes, the Ukrainian nationalism became stronger. It became uh, mainstream after the Russian invasion of 2014, and of course, after the uh, full-scale invasion, it uh, the tendency um, continued. Uh, but after the nine years of war, of course, we may expect that Ukrainian society um, will become ethno-nationalist, but the reality, however, is more complex uh, because if we see the um, president of Ukraine that was elected in 2019, we, we basically basically had two candidates. One candidate was a former president, uh, Poroshenko, uh, who had a kind of ethno-nationalist uh, agenda. And his rival was uh, Zelensky, Russian-speaking, uh, of Jewish origin, uh, and also he, uh, in his political campaign, he emphasized uh, the unity of different regions of Ukraine. He was explicitly countering this ethno-nationalist discourse, and he won the elections in all the regions of Ukraine except the far uh, western uh, Lviv. Uh, he won the elections with 73% uh, of the vote. So... Um, and also he was elected on the promise of finding a so-called diplomatic solution to the war in the Donbas. He promised to negotiate with Putin, which he actually tried to do in, uh, in, uh, back in 2019. Uh, so, yeah, in, in one way, we can say that Ukrainian nationalism has become mainstream. Is it ethno-nationalism? I'm not sure. It, it can Actually, it's a nationalism in making. It, it can take any form. And I think the agency of the Ukrainian society and also of its progressive left components can uh, influence the way how the Ukrainian society will define itself. Will it be uh, some essentialist ethno-nationalist discourse or a uh, civic nationalism, but we cannot avoid um, uh, the nationalist sentiment uh, in the context of war, um, in my opinion.
Thank you. Ilya, I'd like to ask you the, the same question. Obviously, this could be a whole topic by itself, but um, what do you think listeners most need to understand about how Russian society has changed since the start of the war? Mm. So, uh, first of all, I would say that uh, Ukraine's devastation is uh, not comparable to Russia's devastation as a result of this war, but still uh, this this criminal stupidity of Putin's actions led to huge losses for the Russian society as well. Uh, I mean, uh, economic losses and uh, the loss of this uh, perspective for the future. So what's going to happen to Russia in the future? It's not clear. So it's going to be downhill (laughs) from there, (laughs) probably. And uh, in terms of uh, Russian society, so... um, the the scary thing here is that, in my opinion, we can now say that Russia is slowly transforming into a fascist country. So uh, previously, I, I wouldn't agree with that. So Putin's regime was based on a very passive population, and uh, it was uh, okay with people not believing in any ideology as long as they don't interfere with the Kremlin, you know, it's it's okay that people are not ideologically indoctrinated, they're very passive, they don't want to do anything in support of the regime. But now I see that uh, this extreme conservative reactionary uh, ideologies are penetrating the school education, for instance, and really the children are just uh, taught this uh, nationalist bullshit on a massive scale, and uh, um, this is slowly transforming into a fascist state in which the population is actively, so the authorities are trying to engage the population actively with this uh, with these kinds of policies. So they want, now they really want to indoctrinate the people in their in their ideology. And uh, th- this can lead to a situation in, in which really the society changes. For the worst, so it becomes basically like a fascist society in which people actively want uh, to to achieve these genocidal goals, like in Nazi Germany. So I wouldn't say that this already happened, but there is a tendency. There is a tendency towards uh, fascization, right? And uh, on the other hand, there are some like pockets of resistance in Russia. But uh, the nature of uh, repression is such that uh, any kind of legal resistance is uh, no longer possible. So everything is criminalized and the Russian state is actually very effective in punishing its opponents. So uh, now they're basically grabbing everyone who disagrees. So Boris Kogarlitsky is the most uh, recent example. So, uh, I mean... uh, uh, it's it's not just Boris, this world-famous leftist intellectual. It's actually the whole uh, uh, media that he created, Rapkor. So now all of these people are treated as some kind of uh, terrorist organization, in fact, right? So this just proves that uh, repression is really kind of unlimited. But uh, it's not just about refresh, repression. Like I said, it's also about these attempts to actively engage the people in their kind of reactionary ideology and indoctrinate the youth, indoctrinate children, and they do it through schools, they do it through universities. And if this goes on for several years, we will really just Russian society will be unrecognizable. 
So I now obviously live outside Russia because it's not possible to, to talk in this way while you remain in the country. And I'm afraid that in several years, I will just not recognize Russia. It will be just a different country and an extremely scary one and dangerous to the whole world. Because once you start this process, uh, this, will, this can gain its own momentum. So this can become like uh, a tendency that uh, sustains itself, that just like the society becomes more and more fascist because of these policies. Uh, so like I said, this is not a complete process, but there is a very strong tendency towards it. So like they, I don't know, they adopted a new history textbook recently, for instance, in which there's a chapter about so-called special military operation. And basically this official version of this war will be pushed to children starting at a very early age. And uh, the ideological kind of work will be very strong. And uh, in my opinion, since there are still these pockets of resistance and people who think differently, I think from the outside, it's important not to lump every Russian together because it's just objectively not true that everyone thinks the same, you know? And uh, just uh, to continue this idea that literally all Russians are exactly the same. Uh, this is very counterproductive to, in terms of this fascization process because it just aids it. Because more and more people in Russia then they believe yes, so there is no alternative and we should rally behind Putin, we should rally behind the Kremlin. Uh, and uh, this will only help this tendency. Finally, uh, obviously the situation is, is quite different but terribly grim in, in both countries. Um, obviously not the same, but what can people on the left who are listening to this uh, podcast do to help socialists in Ukraine and Russia today? Well, um, I would like to say a few words about uh, the left uh, in Ukraine now. Uh, when, a thing that we need to know is that uh, regardless of political disagreements, uh, the society in Ukraine is now kind of united by this need actually to protect its independence and to survive as a society. And we tend to forget, uh, but it's a necessary condition for any political life. Uh, so there is this kind of uh, unity um, of uh, a Ukrainian society and the state. But uh, in this situation, the Ukrainian authorities uh, um Instead of concentrating their efforts on, for example, adapting the countries to the needs of resistance, adapting the economy, they launched a liberalization program, they're um, uh, undertaking uh, anti-social reforms, so they are trying to actually dismantle uh, the welfare, so... Um, Ukrainians, of course, they are ready to endure the difficulties that are posed by the Russian invasion, but uh, most of them find it extremely unfair that their government uh, put this burden of war on on the poorest uh, on the poorest uh, um, part of the population. And so the, there is uh, still uh, independent unions and left organizations in Ukraine who are very active. Social Ruch, my organization, social movement is also now active in Ukraine. And our position is uh, uh, the following one. And we try to actually communicate this position to the international audience. So we ask 
to increase uh, military, financial, diplomatic support for the Ukrainian state. But uh, we want uh, that this war is not used to favor the corporations, to favor the Ukrainian oligarchs at the expense of the people. Uh, and this is the reason why we need uh, left allies who are actually ready to act uh, in the support of, of, uh, of uh, Ukrainians uh, instead of uh, <laughs> continuing to write endless pro or anti-NATO uh, manifestos. So, um, as I said, so left support is crucial. So the Ukrainian progressive forces could become stronger and um, could uh, help Ukraine uh, to become uh, truly independent, to become democratic, pluralistic, inclusive, social-oriented society. And for uh, the leftists uh, abroad, for the leftists in the US or in other countries, of course, uh, I think being in solidarity with Ukrainians, being in solidarity with people in struggle uh, means more possibilities actually to defend um, justice for all of us. Because if we allow fascism and dictatorship to win somewhere, uh, it means that uh, it will open a way for fascism everywhere. So, and I think this is a huge issue for, for all of us, how to build this dialogue, how to build this active solidarity among the oppressed, how to not to think like a state, but to think like a, like a worker, like uh, someone who wants to help uh, a person like you on the, on the other part, in the other part of the world. So um, you can help, of course, Ukrainian left um, by amplifying their voices, uh, you can build the, the links with the forces of uh, social transformation, uh, for example, Ukrainian civic organization, trade unions, but also with uh, Belarusian and Russian progressive anti-war organizations, with anti-colonial activists, with feminists. You can raise money for, for their initiatives. You can uh, participate also in the international campaigns. Uh, for example, uh, there is a campaign for the cancellation of the Ukrainians foreign debt, uh, a campaign in support of uh, Russian anti-war activists imprisoned by Putin, etc., etc. So, and also you can incite the Western uh, governments to confiscate the assets of Putin's oligarchs and to use them for the reconstruction uh, of Ukraine. Um, and yeah, just just to finish, um, I think uh, in order to help Ukraine, we need in general to oppose uh, uh, and to be critical also and to debate with those, to try to persuade those people who welcome, who tend to welcome the rise of non-Western imperialisms, uh, just because they present themselves as a kind of a multipolar challenge to American uh, domination. Uh, unfortunately, the multipolar world promoted by people like Putin, like uh, Modi, like uh, Xi, like Bol Bolsonaro, Trump, it will be a wonderful place for dictator, for the for dictators, for the far right, but it will be a hell for all of us, for 
ethnic minorities, for workers, for women, LGBT people, etc. So I think in order to help Ukrainians and also Russian socialists, for example, Russian progressive uh, progressivists, you need um, to simply stay in solidarity with the oppressed uh, against the oppressor. But most importantly, you have not to not to confuse the two. So in terms of organized efforts, uh, there is uh, a group called Ukraine Solidarity Network that is active uh, in the United States and unites many uh, leftist groups and uh, leftist uh, activists. And uh, it organizes various events uh, across the country. And so one thing to do is uh, to, to engage with this group and uh, to, to engage with its efforts. Uh, so uh, from the Russian side, I would add that maybe uh, just a really important thing for, for Western left-wing activists to do is education, you know, just to learn more about the region, to learn more about Ukraine, to learn more about Russia, about Russian imperialism, uh, in order to have a better uh, perspective. I think uh, this is, you know, this is not a difficult thing, but it's just really important just to have a better understanding of what's going on. And furthermore, of course, there are anti-war Russian initiatives, uh, including left-wing or left-leaning initiatives uh, that, that need support, that they need uh, help. Uh, for instance, uh, feminist anti-war resistance. So actually a very large group uh, that unites a lot of people, media, like uh, Postlia, this website that we launched with uh, several uh, comrades in order to kind of um, create an anti-war platform for the Russian left. So different projects uh, that, that need uh, support. Uh, so yeah, in terms of concrete efforts, I would emphasize that. And listeners will be able to find links to some of these projects that have been mentioned in the show notes for this episode. So Hannah, Ilya, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>